long time horizons. I think of a society that can hand down work without necessarily a college degree or anything like that to the people that come after it. And they can live rich, meaningful, prosperous lives centered around these great architectural and engineering feats. That is how I see a nuclear power plant. It's an industrial cathedral. And if you don't believe me, you can go check what happens when they get decommissioned. Those communities never recover. And if you're worried about like fentanyl rates and stuff like that, and what happens when um, offshoring devastates the working class, same thing in these places. It creates a whole ecosystem of organized labor and it raises the standards of living around. And also, you know, these plants make it so that people can engage in other civic projects because they have a rich tax base and because people have the leisure time and the cheap electricity to do other things. Welcome to the Harmony of Interest series, where we explore ideas that shape our world. My name is Evan Papp, and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which produces content on labor, political economy, art and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today, I'm speaking with Emmett Penny, who is writer, editor, and educator, and is co-host of Exhaust Podcast that plums the depths of history, culture, and philosophy to understand why it is that despite calamities and rapid change, nothing feels possible anymore. Emmett, thanks so much for your time. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about your article, Nuclear Power Plants, Our Industrial Cathedrals, which was recently published in the American Conservative. But before that, I would like to introduce you to my audience. And uh, could you begin by talking about what your path was uh, in being a leftist or a former leftist and how you came to eventually embrace nuclear energy? Yeah, so for me, you know, I think I had a lot of experience. I had an experience that was pretty common for someone in my generation. You know, I am a millennial, whatever that's supposed to mean. Um, and I graduated college in 2011. That fall, I think it was in September, October, there were zero jobs added to the economy. It was not an easy time to be um, fresh out of college and looking for a job. And I uh, made a very young man's mistake of chasing a girl down to Tallahassee, uh, Florida, where I had no friends and no job and like $300 I'd saved up from working construction. And that's when I really got introduced to the working world. You know, I'd always worked jobs. I had worked jobs since I was like 13. I used to cut gym glass to go work at the local comic shop. So I wasn't like opposed to singing for my supper. You know what I mean? Um, but making minimum wage part-time and trying to get by and hold a relationship together and make rent and stuff like that was a very educational experience for me. And I made friends with people who'd lived there their whole life. Um, I worked in kitchens with lots of people, you know, just the grind in and grind out of working life. And at one point I was working three jobs and I didn't break 20 K that year, like total. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and so that was basically what radicalized me is I took a look around and I was like, none of this really seems to make sense. And, you know, a few things happened after that. I'm not going to give my whole life story, but, you know, I started reading philosophy. I started getting interested in any explanations for this. I read Capital Volume 1 and I was like, okay, I, this is compelling. I recognize the things Marx is talking about in my own working life, you know, um, I'm convinced that uh, I need to start getting active here. And I didn't really know what that meant. I tried 
um, joining like radical feminist groups and stuff like that when I lived in small town Vermont or whatever after I'd lived in Tallahassee. Um, and then I moved out to Santa Fe to go to grad school because I'm an insane person. And I was like, I don't know if Marx is right. I'd better read as much of the Western canon as I possibly can to make sure before I go out and decide to be a socialist or what have you. So I went to St. John's where you get to read all those books. And it was out there that I was still doing political activity. Um, when the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America experienced this ramp up after 2016, I was there to you know, be one of the founding members of the DSA chapter out there. I was a delegate at the national convention later that year. I was writing left-wing articles for like Paste Magazine for uh, the Momentum uh, Labor Party Caucus out in the UK. I was writing stuff for their magazine and I was really deep in it. I was part of the industrial workers of the world. I became convinced that, you know, uh, working people are exploited and that uh, society should be organized by and around their interests, right? But once I got into the left, uh, things started to get weird, you know? Um, you know, I have, uh, an ex I don't talk about this a ton, but like I have an experience in like, you know, I've been sober for like 11 years, right? So I have seen redemption work out. I have seen people do full turnarounds. I have seen many, many things. Uh, that involve forgiveness and understanding. And I've watched communities cohere around those ethics. I saw almost none of that on the left. It was like a disaster. And it was also like trauma was something you could never overcome. Instead, it was like the language of the politics itself. And so I was like, okay, I don't really like vibe with that. Like I tried because I was like, these are the things that I have to say to be a good socialist, but I never really sat right. But I was like, okay, I'll go along to get along. Like there are other things, you know, that are more important in my hierarchy of needs. One of those was like stability for and prosperity for working people, right? Um, but then the more I started to work, uh, the more I started to understand like nuclear energy, I really credit Lee Phillips's book, uh, Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Born Addicts with like fully convincing me, Michael Schellenberger's work too, um, of nuclear, I started to realize there was also this other disconnect happening on the left where there was zero engineering discipline about how the energy, energy economy worked. And there were a lot of people that really just, I could tell didn't have the experience of working nine to five and struggling, you know, where they're just like, you know, in California, they're encouraging you now, like, don't turn on your power from five till nine peak hours because we got to save the planet, right? Like, that's what ener energy austerity looks like from the green perspective. But that's when most working people get home and they have to, like, bathe their kids and, like, make dinner and stuff like that. This isn't academic, yeah. you know? They don't live wealthy enough lives that they can just, like, work around that, you know? Yeah. Um, nor should they have to, right? And that's when I started to feel myself get farther and farther from the left. You know, I still consider myself um, an advocate for working people. As um, Malcolm Skiuna, I think he's a Norwegian socialist um, who's doing interesting writing uh, and thinking over there, once said, um, the working class has no permanent allies, only permanent interests. And that's when I started to think, it doesn't really matter who I talk to as long as these things are on, like bound in my principles and I have a good idea of what the results are gonna be for the working class. And so my 
nuclear advocacy is built around that. And that's why I feel comfortable talking to conservatives, like, and not in a way where I'm like playing both sides where I'm like, you guys need a, a strategy for this. You guys need to think about this. And it's better for the country if you actually have a climate plan that involves nuclear than if the Democrats are the only ones with a climate plan. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much there to unpack. And you, in the article, you even mentioned that your your godfather was a member of the Industrial Workers of the World Party. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, you sent him a photo of your registration card when you first paid your dues. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea of, of organized labor that has, I've gotten so interested in is to see that it's both a means and an end. So to be able to have a voice in your workplace can make your actual business better if you have everyone contributing who's on the assembly lines, who has their voice saying, hey, we can pick it up, we can pick up speeds here, over here where, where things are breaking down. And uh, it allows for much more equity from OSHA to protections of, of being safe on the job to getting a larger share of the profit of what's being produced. The, um, the question though of like austerity and, and living with less, that goes against the entire dynamic direction of human development and civilization. And it, it, is, it, it can be very frustrating where someone may say, well, um, you, you just gotta, you gotta go on less calories. <laughs> you know, and it is from a very privileged uh, position Myself, I had lived in Zambia for three years with the Peace Corps, and I came back with a much, much greater appreciation of the amount of infrastructure that we are born with by being born American. And I heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, Zambians shouldn't get electricity. They should just have better cook stoves and they should work on appropriate technology. And I'm thinking to myself, it's like, are you willing to give up your laptop? Of course not. So there's yeah. this tremendous hypocrisy that's going on with this. And, um, and, and that's something where I, I really started getting interested in electricity because I lived in an area where there was no electricity and everyone <laughs> wanted it. Everyone wanted it. And it's totally. like the, ro the romance of like washing your hands, uh, washing your clothes with your hands that takes three hours that can be done, you know, with a, a laundry machine. They all want that. And we're denying them that by this certain faction of thinking that says, you know, what we we've been given, we can't allow other people to have. And it, it is very frustrating. Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, my friend and colleague, Madison Sirwinski over at uh, Campaign for a Green Nuclear Deal sent me a paper the other day that um, somebody had written about uh, some green NGO built out a bunch of solar panels in India and everyone who lived near it got angry and rioted because they were like, we want a re we want real electricity. Like, what is this nonsense that switches off <laughs> when the sun sets? Yeah. Like, I can't, the batteries aren't enough. This isn't enough. It's too weak. Like, this isn't the life I want to live. And I think we're very, we're so removed from the industrial feats our society has accomplished that we've become... Uh, I would say like uh, illiterate in understanding their benefits. Completely disconnected from the historical material reality of what the United States is. And it's, it's been going on, I think from the generation before us as well. And the infrastructure that's been breaking down ever since it was kind of rebuilt and, and built for the first time in the 1930s and 40s. And we've just been asset stripping it. And now we're, we're in debt, you know, trillions of dollars. The American Society Civil Engineer has a report card every year. And they say, right now we, 
have $5.4 trillion of investments to make on infrastructure. And that's just to make it, you know, make it normal not to get to the horizon technology of, of infrastructure. So it's, it's really frustrating. But I do want to focus on your article, Nuclear Power Plants, Our Industrial Cathedrals. And I really like this concept of an industrial cathedral. So could you, could you talk a little bit about what, what your thoughts were in that? Yeah, absolutely. So you take a look at something like Notre Dame, right? The artisans that go to build it understand that this is going to be a multi-generational project. From the architects who design it to the men who work on it, they know that, I mean, it's gonna be their sons, right? Cause that's what it was, but they know that their children are gonna work on it for generations, right? And that this is something their society is committed to. Now, when my friend Madison was out at the Indian Point closure, one of the people who helped build that plant was still alive and came to the closing ceremony of Indian Point. And the expectation was for that person is that their great grandchildren, their children should have worked there. But that's not what happened. In fact, we don't know how long nuclear plants can last. So when I think about cathedrals, I think of long time horizons. I think of a society that can hand down work without necessarily a college degree or anything like that to the people that come after it. And they can live rich, meaningful, prosperous lives centered around these great architectural and engineering feats. That is how I see a nuclear power plant. It's an industrial cathedral. And if you don't believe me, you can go check what happens when they get decommissioned. Those communities never recover. And if you're worried about like fentanyl rates and stuff like that, and what happens when um, offshoring devastates the working class, same thing in these places. It creates a whole ecosystem of organized labor and it raises the standards of living around. And also, you know, these plants make it so that people can engage in other civic projects because they have a rich tax base and because people have the leisure time and the cheap electricity to do other things. Yeah. I love, I love the concept of the industrial cathedral. And we've been in such a deregulated system of everything from finance and to actual buildings. These infrastructure projects, you know, they take years to build and the short-term thinking oftentimes driven by the financial oligarchs, the finance oligarchs in Wall Street are all on the quarterly uh, kind of turn, which has seeped into the rest of the culture to not be able to look at long-term investments and that return on investment because nuclear power plants, they right now they've extended licenses to 80 years, even a hundred years. But to talk about the, the Indian point, that's just a little bit of background. That's a nuclear power plant in just outside New, New York City, I, I believe Buchanan, New York. Mm -hmm. And they closed down this plant and there's also uh, hundreds of union jobs that were lost in the closure. It could have kept going, um, but it was closed for political reasons and for financial reasons as well. And it's gonna be replaced by natural gas. As Actually, the plant was profitable. It was the only profitable one in New York. So not even financial reasons. The exchange was, Northern New York's plants, which are kind of struggling financially, will get the zero emissions credits they need or something like that. Some sort of deal was made so that they're gonna keep that as long as Indian Point closes. It doesn't make any sense. you know. I mean, they should, none of those plants should be off the grid. They should all be there, um, but that was the deal. And that was what like 
left environmental groups like the National Re Natural Resource Defense Council, Riverkeeper, the Sierra Club, all of them had a hand in doing this. Yeah, and it's going to be replaced by this natural gas uh, or oh, methane already has gas. Uh, yeah. And methane gas is obviously the fuel source that is always going to back up wind and solar because it can mm -hmm. ramp up very quickly and, and down because the actual um, methane gas uh, generators are jet engines essentially that can go very quickly up and down and ramp up uh, like that. And it, it goes right into this short-term thinking of a fuel source that's just in time, can have a spot price, can be very profitable for uh, mm -hmm. those who care about finance more than uh, an actual like stable electricity grid. They can make more money on the fluctuations on the up and down. But I, I do want to talk a little bit more about nuclear power. Um, and when you learned about it having no carbon at Chernobyl, Three Mile Island and Fukushima were overblown. And could you talk a little bit about some of the, the problems with renewables uh, being too dilute and intermittent to power industrial society on their own? Yeah. I mean, it's funny, the farther and farther away I get from my old understanding, the harder it gets to like understand the advocates for it. But I think it goes something like this, right? One way to look at industrialization is um, the tragedy of Prometheanism. We forced our will on the earth, we ruptured its natural bounds, and now we're paying the price through climate change. In order to remedy that, we must make our society return to being in sync with nature. What better way to do that than with an energy sources that move with the sun and the wind, the most renewable and natural of energy. The sun's going to shine, the wind's going to blow. And so that's the idea. Unfortunately, that's more romance than reality. The truth is that nobody wants power that just works some of the time. In fact, you have to force people to take it, as we saw in India. Um, and as, we're, as we see Robert Bryce over at Power Hungry, he did some sort of uh, report uh, with a group called, uh, I think literally not in my backyard, but they cataloged the hundreds of local disputes over wind turbine build outs all over the United States, not just the continental. And that's because they take up tons and tons of land. My co-author, Adrian Calderon on um, a piece I wrote on a green, we wrote on a green nuclear deal we took a look at the entire terawatt hours for the electrical grid in 2019. It was something like 4,100 terawatt hours, right? Um, or terawatt, I can't remember the exact breakdown. But we were like, what would it take for the entire grid to be renewables? How much land? It'd be about 80 to 85% of the size of Ohio. And that's just for 2019, provided our economy doesn't grow. Now, some people might be like, that's a deal I'm willing to take. Okay, but then we're no longer having an environmental conversation. We're doing something else because that's going to be a ton of land. We, we didn't even factor in transition, tr transmission, right? What would it be for nuclear? Third of the size of Chicago. That would be the land footprint there, right? So that's what we're looking at. Now, as you were saying, the problem with the intermittency of renewables and wind means that you're going to have to back them up because nobody wants a dialysis machine that only runs some of the time. We live in an industrialized society, which means we need the energy there all the time. There's no way around that unless you're gonna plunge people into poverty. That's it, that, those are your two options, right? Plunging people into poverty, maintaining industrial society. That's it, right? 
So what's going to happen? Well, we're going to need backups for that. And for about every like 0.88 megawatts of renewables you're going to install, you're going to need 1.0 megawatts of likely natural gas to support it for all the reasons you illuminated. So they're not a way out. Actually, the reason why when you go to the airport and you see Chevron, Shell, and BP ads that have all these glorious looking wind turbines and all these gleaming solar panels is because they're like, this is a great deal for us. As long as these things exist, we've got natural gas. It will always be on the grid if we do that. And that tends to be the most true in the wealthiest areas of America, right? Those are the ones that re-regulated, usually under Republican state legislatures, even if they are um, blue states presidentially. Uh, so that's gonna be California, that's gonna be Texas, that's going to be uh, New York, New England. They were like, we're gonna create these energy auctions, right? Where every five minutes we're gonna bid on which plant is going to provide energy to our thing. Well, that's going to advantage natural gas, which you said can ramp up and it's gonna advantage renewables, which basically utilities get paid to take their energy because of subsidies, right? That is going to force off things that are more resilient like nuclear, like coal. I mean, you might not cry for the loss of coal, but when it gets cold as hell out and New England starts to go through rolling blackouts and they can't buy any stuff except at an exorbitant price from Canada, you know, we might say, geez, I would have even wished for coal now because people die when it's cold as hell and there's no power, right? So mm -hmm. this is the problem with having a renewables-based solution, right? I was just on Twitter today and I said, it's like, you know, I, you know, I'm a meathead, you know, I've been lifting weights for most of my life. I was a power lifter for a while. I was a personal trainer for a while. And I used to have clients that would be like, what supplements do I need to be taking? You're like, which whey protein is the best? Like which pre-workout's the best? You know, and meanwhile, their diet is like terrible. You know, they're majoring in the minors and they're not like squatting to depth. You know, they're doing all these other weird machine workouts. And I'm like, no, 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 this needs to be simplified. You just need to eat well and consistently. You don't need to buy fancy things and you need to squat to depth. And to me, a resilient grid is a good diet and nuclear is a deep squat. <laughs> like, yeah, it makes yeah. you stronger, it keeps going and it actually gets results. Guys used to say this to me all the time. They would be like, well, I don't wanna get too big. Or some of my female clients would say that too, as if you just like touch a heavy weight once in your life and you wake up looking like Mr. Olympia. That's not really how that works, right? Like what that usually means is I'm scared of the hard work this involves. And it's the same thing with renew with uh, nuclear. They're like, look, it's, it's too hard. It's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. Big engineering projects are always going to be like that. You should be skeptical about the fact that renewables are so cheap. It should tell you something about them that they're so cheap and they're cheap to install. As again, my friend Maddie says, uh, and also my friend Mark Nelson, um, renewables are, an ex are a cheap way to make expensive electricity. Nuclear is an expensive way to make electricity cheap. We gotta, we, I, wa I wanna live in a society where we're big on the basics. Being big on the basics means that you're helping out working people, right? You're building a resilient society that can be passed down generation to generation, that people feel like they have skin in the game. It's resilient to whatever historical stressors they're going to be. And that's what we get when we support nuclear over renewables.
Well, I, I want to get into the cultural piece a little more, but I, I also want to fanboy a little bit more on nuclear as well myself. And the idea of the, the fuel, just on every, every type of metric when you're an, analyzing nuclear, for instance, you're looking at the fact that it has a, re, a fueling, uh, like you refuel every two years in some of, the, some of these cases. And so it's, it's on 90% of the time where, you know, you have coal shipments coming in every couple of days, you have natural gas that it, you know, completely shuts off in a uh, time like what happened in Texas recently. And then of course, wind and solar are shutting off all the time as well. Um, on top of that, the, the actual like footprint beyond just the land use, but the amount of waste created from the production of nuclear electricity, generated electricity, is very, very small. It's just this nuclear waste that is also usable in a lot of ways and can be recycled compared to the solar panels that no one's looking at that waste stream right now, which it's oftentimes built by Chinese coal factories as well. And so Chinese coal is built into these solar panels that after 20 years um, break down or even less. And uh, they go into some type of landfill somewhere. So all of those things I, I think are really important yeah. to consider. And then at the same time, it, you wanna have your electricity grid as inexpensive as possible. You don't wanna put your profit motive on generating electricity because electricity is in everything. So you wanna to try to figure out how do you get electricity to near zero? How do you get your transportation costs to near zero, your, your communication costs to near zero, your education costs? Because then all the value is gonna be generated outside of that in space programs that have 10 to one returns and those types yep. of things. Totally. And capital goods sector instead of a consumer goods sector. It's just like basic understanding of, of an industrial policy. So I'm, I'm preaching to the, the, the choir. Oh, hey, man, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I mean, look, so one of the reasons there's a bull market in uranium right now, because there is, it's huge. It's huge. Michael Berry's in, the guy from the Big Short or whatever, um, you know, he's in on it. And if you read any of these theses for why you should invest in uranium now, it's because they're like, look, in the long run, it's cheaper. Which way do you think businesses are going to go? Expensive electricity that fragilizes the grid or cheap electricity that stabilizes it? Eventually, it should go towards the cheaper and more stable. So that's why that bull market exists right now. That's a good sign for us. It means that people are starting to wake up for all of the reasons you just enumerated. And I mean, we, we don't live in a uh, unipolar world with the United States sitting on top of the end of history. I mean, China and Russia, they're moving ahead with this technology, this, this beautiful, like magical technology that's been given to us almost like from the future. They're able to build these things, uh, these plants under on time, you know, on budget. And so, the question of the U of Americans being unable to build anything anymore on time on budget, that's a much bigger issue that we also need to kind of figure out yeah. as well and really, really focus on. Yeah, I mean, Rosetta builds almost every single reactor that gets built now. I mean, I'm maybe overselling it a little bit. Those guys also closed the fuel cycle because they wanted to. They can refire fuel, they build the fast breeder reactors. Now it's more expensive for them to do that. So they don't tend to do it. But Russia has been through a ton of calamities. So it makes sense that a nation that has been through that much is like, you know what, we might not always have the uranium resources via trade that we want. So we better be able to use all the spent fuel we have, right? This is long term robust thinking. And you're right, 
it looks like we're trending away from a unipolar world. That's going to be very, very fascinating to watch happen. You know, it's going to change a lot of things about how the U.S. sees itself and its own stature. And thank God it has put a check on, I think, some of the more arrogant and hubristic ideas about what globalization was really going to do for working people everywhere. Yeah. I always like calling globalization as just a way to destroy unions and race to the bottom. And <laughs> I, I think of I think of two things, right? I think it was uh, George H.W. Bush's one of his his uh, economic secretary says it doesn't matter whether you build potato chips or microchips as long as they sell, right? That was the idea going into the halcyon days of globalization. And then I think of another thing: in the middle of COVID, at, at its beginning, really, Larry Summers, doyen of financialization tweets out, why can't the richest country in the world manufacture masks domestically? And I was like, great question, Lair. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder who's responsible for that, bud. Yep. And there's no price to pay. I mean, I guess he paid a little price by not getting uh, another appointment in the, the Biden. Uh... Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And here's, I'll finish with one, one thing just on this, on this nuclear thing before we go on to the, the cultural aspect of it. It's like, look, nuclear is an ancestral American technology, like the telephone, like everything that Edison did. It was done here first. And like those things I mentioned, we are in danger of losing it. A country that is so willing to let go of its achievements is not one that is going to be set up to embrace the future. That is the dialectical relationship between stewarding what is good of the past with an eye towards the future. Well, very nicely said. Uh, I do wanna focus on this concept of presentism within the left. So you wrote the left's fixation on green renewables is a symptom of presentism. I had to look that up actually, when, because that, that was kind of a new uh, phrase that I heard. So what, what did you mean by that? So presentism, here's what I noticed on the left. When I was in the left, there was this idea that, and people say they don't, if you ask them without making them take a truth serum, they'd be like, I don't believe that. But the way they act, I would say the uh, casuals, casualness which with which they condemn history and things like that. We can think of the um, unrest that happened this summer. I'm not gonna take a stance on any of that. But what I will say is that it's very troubling that figures like, um, Lincoln statues were coming under assault and things like that. Now, I am under no illusions about Abraham Lincoln having some unsavory elements to his presidency, even civil war aside, or even as a person. But then it doesn't really matter. If you can't understand the great emancipator, as Frederick Douglass saw him, as a movement forward for American society, then you don't care about the past. You might not even care about stewarding what has been glorious in this society. Like the Massachusetts 54th, the Union Army Division that was integrated, whose slogan was freedom forever, serfdom never. If the left can't see itself in that history, in America, right, where we have to live, this is our country, we live here, we're supposed to be responsible for it. We're supposed to have all our stupid little fights over it you know, in the media and elsewhere. 
because we all have a stake in this. If you can't respect that, then what you're saying is I don't care about the past. You may say, well, who cares? I want to remake society anyway. I don't want any of that stuff. I'm like, well, yeah, that's sort of the problem here, right? Because then you're like, well, I don't know about long time horizons, man. Like, I don't really care about stuff like that, but I know that renewables work now. And I know that we've really traumatized mother earth and we need to be in harmony with her. So we need all of this stuff to work, which means you can't really think about the future. And that's the bitter irony there is that they're just stuck in this idea that thinking that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. They don't owe anything to history or to society at large. They see themselves as such liberatory figures. And ironically, that has helped pave the way through their friendliness with the natural gas industry and nine-digit budget environmental groups. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a lot there to unpack. So um, I, I think if you want to be able to control a population, you need to uproot them. Like the more you can take away their history, the more you can control them and just make them blow with, mm-hmm. with which any way you want the the media to push it. And um, there there's also this this really strong belief in an apocalypse. And anytime you have a generation that is so aligned with apocalyptic visions, they also can lose any type of rational. <laughs> understanding of what totally. to happen. Uh, so some of this like end of the world talk because of climate change is, is makes it impossible to actually be able to organize and to be able to actually run a government. And so you, you do kind of touch on that a little bit. Could you expand on that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're stuck in the idea that the world is going to end, look, that's very dramatic there's something darkly comforting about it, right? Because you get to be special. You're the end. You're the end. Well, the problem is, is if you don't see yourself as owing anything to the past, right? If you don't see yourself as a chain of influence, a chain of all of these things, some of which might be dark consequences. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have a rosy-eyed view of American history. I don't think this has been a story of us just becoming the greatest people forever, right? But Still, if you don't understand yourself as part of this cresting wave of history, then if the apocalypse is going away, you don't get to be special. And that is unbearable unless you have context. It also means you don't understand consequences because that's the way context works. There's a reason why there's a bipartisan effort to leech history out of any discussion that we have in this country and our memory is like puddled deep. And it's because context creates consequences. I feel that so much of the left has also been kind of absorbed philosophically in uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and this idea of like the noble savage and like this return to the state of nature. And this has this type of philosophy of worshiping this this primitive man as as opposed to the Promethean understanding of of the potentiality of, of of humanity is kind of one, I think, very negative influence. And then another one, which I, I was influenced by when I read the people's history of, you know, from Howard Zinn, but it's just this Manichaean view of good versus evil. And the United States is evil again and again and again, not acknowledging that 
we've gone through three revolutions already in this country, as I would understand it. The first one being against the British, the next one being against the Southern Confederate slave-holding oligarchs that was also backed by the British. And then the third one is, you know, this New Deal reorganization and the defeat of Nazism. Now we're going through this fourth revolution. The question is, is it going to go fascism? Is it going to go some other darker direction toward, but the, the, there is a revolution going on. And if your only historical understanding is to go back to the noble savage or to just see the United States in a Manichaean lens of always being evil, then you're, 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 you've already decided where we're going as a country. And it, it's um, very pessimistic and cynical. Yeah, you're not up to the task that's before you, right? So Cornel West co-authored a really lovely op-ed when he found out that Howard and HBCU, historically black college and university, was getting rid of its classics program. And he said, this was a spiritual catastrophe. He says, do they not understand that Frederick Douglass risked life and limb to read Cicero? So how can we understand him without having understood Cicero? More importantly, you never get to be outside of a tradition. You're either in a tradition and aware of it or in a tradition and ignorant of it. And if it's the latter, you're completely captured by its worst assumptions. This is what we have to resist. We have to say, look, I can have a clear eyed look of things that have happened in this country. Some of them horrify me. Some of them, I weep at their glory right? And then you have to say to yourself, I love this country because I'm not going anywhere else. And I'm responsible for this country, which means I need to hand it down. And not everything's going to look the way I want it or be the way I want it. And I don't need to become some centrist patsy. What I really need to do is concede to my innermost self that I have real skin in this game and that I'm going to play it like that. I'm not going to devolve to some romantic notion of a return with a V to you know, the state of nature, nor am I going to have this insouciant iconoclastic quality that has no regard for those that have come before me. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the yoke of history on my back and try to walk forward with the rest of my society because I am part of it, as it is a part of me. To me, that is what the last year really successfully taught me, that no matter what my fate was bound up in this country, it's like when James Baldwin goes to France, right? He writes a lovely essay about it. And as much as he loves France, because it's of course a reprieve from segregated America, you know, that he realizes he's truly American white or black, whoever it is, the people he gets along with most and has the deepest friendships while he's there with are Americans, right? Ralph Ellison writes a similar essay, right? He says, white Americans have no idea how black they are until they go to Europe. Everything about their swagger, their stance, that's black. Guy who does not get enough credit, Albert Murray Jr. in the Omni Americans, another black author who worked on the Tuskegee Institute, he writes a similar thing. You know, these are men who were not asleep to the worst elements of America. 
You want to see some of the worst stuff about racism in America? Read The Invisible Man, right? Read No Name in the Streets by James Baldwin. You know, read The Omni-Americans. They weren't asleep to this. They knew it was up, but they also understood that they were American and that there was a promise there, that there was an emancipatory potential in the idea of a republic, which is a non-ethnic idea of a nation state. At its core, we are bound into the law and we are allowed to be who else we want to be outside of that. And if there's anything that I still believe makes this country great, it is that. Non-ethnic, non-religious. I mean, you see yeah. all the conflict right now in the Middle East. I mean, we are an immigrant nation, some of it through slavery and some of it through through choice, but that has strengthened us. And, and on the other side, those folks who want to go back to a time where we were supposedly all white, but you know, Irish people weren't considered white, and well, I mean, it's just considered it, white. You know, it, it's we it's are ridiculous fantasy. It's a ridiculous yeah. fantasy. Like yeah. the the truth is, like, you know, like yeah, we're also a colonial nation. Like that's part of it too, and that has its own dark elements that have played out. But you know what I think is really cynical is when people like to trot out these alleged victim categories first, as if these people have no idea of their own lives or what they'd like, or that they're a monolithic block. And they say, you can't do this because it's gonna hurt X, Y, and Z people, right? Indigenous communities are probably a good example of that. You know, they shut down a coal plant in Navajo Nation here and they're gonna replace it with renewables. And everybody's like, yay, that's great. I'm like, well, not for the people that work there because those renewable jobs basically don't exist. And now they're gonna have shitty expensive electricity in an already poor region that just lost most of its tax base. You know what else? There is a trade union of mostly Navajo workers in Canada that are figuring out how to sue the United States for closing so many of its nuclear plants because it's screwing over their uranium mining. You know what I mean? This is not as simple as people make it out to be. It's not as clear. The idea of victimhood doesn't necessarily make sense. We can understand much about the cruelty of our own history without, without saying that everyone who has suffered it is the same and trapped in that. I would never want to be so condescending as to tell someone what their inner life is like. And that you're condemned to it. And this and is that, yeah, and that you're condemned to it, that you're stuck there because usually what that ends up meaning is somebody say, is somebody saying, look, I'm not actually in that category, but feel bad for me who understands just how much they suffer. You know what? They don't actually need to speak. They're probably too traumatized. I'll speak for them. And in fact, I bet you they all believe the same thing and have all the same interests. I don't like if that's not like paternalistic racism, I like really don't know what is. You know, <laughs> I just, I really don't. So I, I do want to get into maybe some more hopeful, optimistic ways totally. that uh, you approach things. But I, I want to read this um, little passage that you wrote that uh, really articulated um, just what, what we were discussing. If survival is all you care about, then to cope with hard realities, you'll retreat to fantasy. The left's fantasies are romantic. The romance is that of trauma and healing. They think in terms of victimization rather than moral agency. Personal pain, not universal rights nor civic duty, is a prison through which they derive their conceptions of the social good. Absence of pain serves as their vision of freedom. You know, that, that, that's just really powerful. I mean, like, <laughs> it, it, it's, the, the, the con that concept of freedom is just so, so dark in, in a way. Um, and, and unachievable and it doesn't speak to it's not even within like the freedom to or freedom from like we might say freedom from pain but like come on life is a disaster 
And it's also beautiful. That's why we have art. That's why we have community. That's why we're together, right? So the idea that there's an absence of pain, like certainly we can all say we don't wanna live in a society that like brutalizes the hell out of people day in, day out. Some parts of our society are like that and they should be changed, right? But to make that your definition of freedom is to evacuate any real sense of political struggle or meaning and any ability to strategize because there are trade-offs for everything. And sometimes to win, you have to suffer. You know, the absence of pain also serves as a nice like utilitarian definition of freedom. I always think what Slavoj Žižek says about happiness. He was like, I don't care about happiness. He's like, happiness He's like, if you actually want to do something, what you're really saying is I am ready to suffer, not I am ready to be happy, right? So there's that aspect of it. And again, the lack of strategy that gets built in. If there are always trade-offs, which there always are in politics, someone's always going to be a little bit unhappy. Somebody's going to be in pain. What are you going to do? But the thing about socialism, and there was a labor MP who said this, I can't remember who, but he said, socialism is the language of priorities. And it goes back to stuff we were talking about at the before, building that robust base into society is in the interest of working people, no matter what extraction they're from, no matter what their creed is. That is the unified class interest of working Americans. And that's what we have to fight for if we want to continue the emancipatory legacy that was inaugurated in the founding of this nation. Which isn't to say the founding fathers are necessarily gonna like everything that we do, but rather they created something with unforeseen consequences that has continued in the direction of freedom after them. So on strategy, right? So you're <laughs> very politically minded as well as having this deep understanding of, of energy systems and philosophy and things like that. And you're writing in the American conservative, which is more of a right, you know, right of center kind of publication that gave mm -hmm. you space. And one of, one of the things you kind of um, end the article with is like almost in a giving up on the left and saying, hopefully the conservatives will at least step up to be able to preserve these industrial cathedrals. Is that kind of the, the tack that, that you see as the most immediate necessity in front of you? Well, look, some of these fights are gonna happen on the ground. And so it's gonna be about what's preserving the fleet on the ground. If there are Democrats in Illinois that wanna step up and save Byron and Dresden, the plants there that are in danger and closing down in a couple of weeks. Great, I love that. I wanna see them out in droves, you know, that's excellent. But one thing that I've noticed in nuclear energy advocacy is that everybody spends a lot of time talking to progressives in the left because they think that they're natural allies, right? I would say that in a weird wrinkle of history that might not always be true. And at the national level, that is likely untrue. In fact, conservatives have never been an enemy of nuclear energy. They've been an enemy sometimes of the politics that allow it to happen, but that's a political fight, not a cultural intellectual one. And if I've noticed anything about American politics, it's that the cultural intellectual battles are the hardest to fight. So I'm trying to go where it seems like the stream might be easiest. We have an insurgent industrialist right in this country. Julius Krein, the editor of American Affairs, showed up, which is a conservative publication, showed up in like 2017 to Dissent Magazine headquarters with his compatriot Gladden Pappen, who writes for First Things in American Mind, as well as American Affairs. And they went to have a debate. And the thing that Julius Krein opened with, he says, you want to know what? 
There are a lot of things we actually agree on. Here's what they are. Better wages for working people, better stuff for stability. He's like, what if we were the new center and we could have all of our interminable, stupid cultural fights, but at least we would be having fights over things that would probably legitimately be in the interest of most Americans. And unfortunately for the people at Descent, they decided to spend the next hour and a half calling both of them racist. Uh, one of them was very embarrassed when they found out that um, Gladden Pappen is actually a member of the Osage County Tribal Council. Um, but anyway, all this is to say, I was like, I want to talk to these people because no one is. And to me, that's hopeful. Because if we only have one side discussing these things, we're only going to get their version of it. Out of conflict, progress happens. Do I think it's better if Democrats only have a climate plan? They're the only ones that have it. Well, their path dependency is all renewables. And it is pulling teeth to get them to admit nuclear is better because a lot of their paychecks are involved in uh, renewables. On the conservative side, they're open to the technology. They just need to be persuaded. Well, I would love it if they had their own climate plans and they involve nuclear. I think that there might be a nice fight over what a good future is going to be and that that is a better America to live in than if it's, that's not the case. And I think that there's hope in that. I believe in democracy. Democracy is not about just consensus. It is about dissensus, as the philosopher Jacques Rancière likes to remind us. And so I want to bring a little more productive dissensus into the fight over what this country is going to do about climate change, how it's going to reshore its supply lines, and who's going to benefit the most from that. Because if we aren't trying to set up that situation, then what we're doing is we're playing some weird other game that looks more like culture than politics to me. And I'm sorry, I'm done trying to treat politics like it's my identity. I'm trying, I'm done trying to like play these cultural games. Politics is about winning and getting things done. I would like to do a little bit more of that, please. Yeah. And the legitimacy, the legitimacy of um, if your your rule, this idea of eudaimonic legitimation, which is essentially, you need to improve the material well-being of the people that you are leading, and if you're mm -hmm. not, then you're failing, and maybe you should go to the back of the line and let other people lead. Right. The other thing is like, okay, look, if I want to be really brutal about this, I'll look at it this way. Some of the people I criticize in my piece are AOC and the DSA, the organization I used to be a part of. AOC supported the closure of Indian Point, right? I think that's a disaster. I, I can't understand that. I don't know if, I, what socialists would do that. Even more disappointing was the DSA. Now I said, and I referenced some tweets that they supported it. They more tacitly supported it. Here's what they would do. They'd go on a podcast, the guys who were running their public power campaign through their eco-socialist working group. And the person would be like, what about Indian Point? And they'd be like, look, I'm neutral on that. But here are all these NRDC talking points about why it needs to close. You know what I mean? And now natural gas has replaced that. Now the grid is going to get more fragile. Now there are fights within New York State DSA because the people who are living with nuke plants up north are like, hey, UNYC jerks can't keep closing our plants and then telling us it's public power. And the unions are pissed at the DSA because they're like actually dealing with the state and this public thing. They're worse brokers with us than the private companies who are already here. So we'd like it if you'd listen to us and quit saying you're union back and you just mean grad student unions. Where are the people actually working here? So I'm asking people to not just look at what the label of what something is, but actually who it does and the oldest, oldest political question there is, which speaks to what you're talking about. Evan, cui bono, who benefits? And if it doesn't benefit the majority of working people, 
I am frankly not interested. And to put a finer point on that, you're an enemy. So how can people follow your work? Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at um, dumb Aristotle. Uh, you can also check out my podcast, which is exhaust, E-X dot H-A-U-S-T. It is available on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. There's a Patreon in there if you'd like to extra episodes. I think that those are a lot of fun. If you're not into that, that's fine. The free stuff is good too. Enjoy that. We've got a lot of great content coming up this summer. Um, and of course, uh, you can always reach out to me. My DMs are open. If you have any questions about nuclear, any questions about what I've just said on this podcast or challenges to it, reach out. I can't promise that I will always have the time, but I try to make the time to reach out to people in good faith when they reach out to me in the same way, because we need to have more conversations about this and I'm open to have them. Emmett Penny, thanks so much for all the work you're doing. Hey, thank you, Evan. Thanks for having me and thanks for the voice you're giving labor. <laughs>